This is part two of our BJA education podcast on anticoagulation for cardiopulmonary bypass. And again, I'm talking with Dr. Bruce Cartwright about his upcoming paper, Anticoagulation Cardiopulmonary Bypass, part two, in particular, pathological states of coagulation. So your second paper talks about patients with pre-existing prothrombotic and hemophilic states and how these pose additional challenges for anticoagulating for cardiopulmonary bypass. And some of these are quite rare. So how do you navigate these kind of challenging cases where I guess the evidence base is, again, even less than in uh, routine care? Well, there's probably one prothrombotic statement really is the most common compared to all others, and that's antiphospholipid syndrome. It's like most hematological disorders. It's given a very complex name for what is actually an underlying lesion that's easy to understand if you understand the pathophysiology. So there's terms like lupus anticoagulant, antiphospholipid, uh, phospholipid assays, antiphospholipid syndrome, systemic lupus erythematosus, those sorts of things. But the fundamental problem is that you have an antibody that interacts with phospholipids. Phospholipids are a core part of um, biological membranes, including the platelet surface. That's why they're used in ACT assays and the APTT. So partial thromboplastin or half of making clot thromboplastin is half of tissue factor and phospholipid. And so it's just a way of saying phospholipid. And it's an integral part of contact activation, which is the process that we're looking to offset with an antithrombotic drug like heparin. So when that process generates antibodies of some form, the antiphospholipid syndromes occur. Now, those syndromes are detected either through coagulation assays or through antibody titers. Um, And people get a diagnosis that's based on a clinical event together with an assay that establishes the diagnosis. So it's either uh, prolongation with a lupus anticoagulant or evidence of those antiphospholipid assay uh, antibody titers, either IgG or IgM. But what will often occur, or the, the most common scenario, is you'll have a patient that presents and they'll have, it, they'll have routine coags done, which is not actually that useful for <laughs> the bulk of patients. You'll have a routine coags done and they'll have an APTT of 75. And someone will do a mixing study, which is just mixing the blood with normal plasma. And they'll say it doesn't correct. So if you mix the blood with normal plasma and it corrects to normal, then you've got a fact deficiency. Um, If it doesn't correct, you've got an inhibitor of some form. And that inhibitor can be a lot of things, but often it's an antiphospholipid inhibitor. And so they they get labelled as having an anticoagulant. But the in vivo process is coagulation. It's just an in vitro anticoagulation effect. Um, So that's the most common sort of patient you'll encounter. Now, they may well have a diagnosis already. They've had like a thrombotic event, either a DVT, PE or a, a spontaneous abortion, or they might not. Um, and this might be the first chance or first time that this has been picked up because this antibody response can occur to a variety of things and it can be effervescent or it can be ongoing like most autoimmune diseases. 
it has a crossover with the antibiotics that occur in SLE, obviously. Um, and so the unique challenge for cardiopulmonary bypass, though, is you get into this situation where heparin, which you're very used to looking at and monitoring and finding it pretty easy to understand and dose, the test that you use to monitor it is now going to fail. And so you have to go back to dosing on algorithm. And then when you go to reverse, the assay that you're going to rely on is also going to be impaired. And so your your assay, which is uh, prolonged because the interaction of the antibody with the phospholipid in the ACT, for instance, retards the activation of the clot. But in the patient, is actually promoting venous thrombosis a lot of the time um, and can be catastrophic for some people, can be overwhelming, the sort of antibody response. So the by far and away, my best piece of advice is if you have a patient like this, then involve a hematologist and they can give you very clear advice on what to do and how to detect it, um, how big a problem it is for you. Like most of these hematological things, they're a spectrum of disease, like hemophilia. In hemophilia A and B, the actual titers of factors 8 and 9 relate to the severity of the syndrome. Uh, and it's very similar in these a lot of these disorders where it's a real spectrum of disease. It might be something that's quite minor. So you might have a minor prolongation of an assay and you otherwise treat them completely normally through to someone who... You have no idea from the APTT, it's so prolonged um, mm. that the ACT is going to be so prolonged that it won't really give you useful information and they will be able to give you some direction on that. That's the same with the, at the other opposite end of the prothrombotic with hemophilia patients. Like the, the core principle is that you restore patients back to their normal factor levels perioperatively and that takes a regime that it restores it both pre-op, interop, and post-op, um, but a hematologist will be the best person to go to for advice to, to manage those sorts of things. On the whole, though, we still uh, use heparin and protamine for these patients mm. as the, the basis of therapy. Yeah. And so do these patients tend to have high complication rates, uh, clotting and bleeding, um, due to all of these challenges? Yes, they do. Um so certainly, like the APLS group, um, they do really badly um, perioperatively as a group. So they commonly present for uh, mitral valve surgery in particular, and they also present for things like um, thromboendarterectomies, and they, they perform worse than other groups. So they have more thrombotic complications and more bleeding complications. I think it's just because they're, they're a lot harder to manage in that that sort of the perioperative context. So they need to be anticoagulated generally as quickly as possible because they're prothrombotic. Um, that's the issue. And um, the that is challenging when you can't really monitor where you are and you've got someone who really for cardiopulmonary or a cardiac patient most of their life, just like these prothrombotic people, most of your life you actually want to poison them. It's only a very short period of time that you want them to clot, and then you want to poison them again as quickly as possible. Um, and trying to work out that window 
is very hard. So when you can't manage that window easily, then you run into complications because they need to be, they're often on warfarin therapy and that generates another set of problems in and of itself um, in the perioperative context. And they want to, they need to be back on an antithrombotic sort of therapy postoperatively quickly as well. Kind of a silly question really, because I guess it would be pretty miraculous if they didn't have uh, increased amount of complications <laughs> with yeah. all these challenges, different medications. And... Yeah, they're, so sometimes they're not challenging. They're, it's a fairly mild disease process, but sometimes it can be catastrophic. I've had some patients had cat catastrophic APLS and they mm. just flamed out in sort of 24 hours. It's very difficult to manage. And they start trying to do things like plasmapheresis and aggressive IVIG and uh, antithrombotics, but it, it can be very difficult to manage. You have lots of trainees coming around and, and fellows and things and to, to work with you in theatres. What do you think are the kind of common mistakes or assumptions that people do make in managing anticoagulation? Yeah, so um, we've touched on a few of these already. I think the commonest by far is the protamine dosing thing. So just drawing up 500 milligrams of protamine because 50,000 of heparin was given. And so I go through that process of talking about what do you think the effective concentration is going to be. Um, and that, but the, um, the next assumption that I think people make, uh, in terms of managing anticoagulation is that they always assume that the ACT relates to heparin alone. Um, I'm not sure why people make that assumption, but it's a very common assumption that the registrars make, uh, when we're doing ACTs on bypass and they're saying, well, the ACT is 999, heparin concentration must still be long. And then I, I say to them, <laughs> yeah, and I, I um, I say to him, well, let's think about because we have rotums in our theatres, but they, it's the same thing with the tech. I say, well, let's think about the things that prolong the clotting time on the intem. What would you say are the commonest reasons for that bit to be prolonged? And they say, well, the first thing they say always is clotting factors, and then I say, what else prolongs it? And they say, well, temperature. And I say, that's correct. And, I say, and what else? And they go, fibrinogen and heparin and platelet count and ionized calcium, you say, well, so we've got like six variables now that are prolonging the interim. And I said, the interim and the ACT are actually pretty similar in the way they operate. Same like the Kalen T, very similar. Um, it's not that hep the heparin and, pro heparin and ACT relationship has disappeared. It's just that there's now six variables that determine whether the ACT is prolonged. And we're not really keeping track of too many of them except for the calcium concentration and the temperature. Um, so I don't know the functional platelet count and I don't know the fibrinogen level a lot of the time when I'm looking at the ACT. Um, so there's an assumption that the ACT is prolonged purely by heparin. And so the heparin concentration may actually be a lot lower than what they perceive it to be. And um, so this is caught out Fortunately, I haven't been caught out by this, but it has caught out some people who have given protamine, the heparin concentration has been a lot lower than what they thought it was, and the circuit clots out. And it clots out incredibly fast once, once it gets underway. Mm. The other big assumption I think that people make is the doses of protamine they give for pump blood. So, and I have some surgeons... Um, get very upset with the whole concept of giving pump blood. They go, oh, you can't give that. It's full of heparin. Mm. 
And I say to him, well, let's let's have a think about how much heparin you think is in a litre of pump load and how much protamine is going to be needed. And they go, oh, okay. I say, well, what do you think the average concentration at the end of bypass of heparin is in patients in, in most cases? And they all agree with me that somewhere between two to three units per mil. I say, well, if I've got a thousand mils here, how many units of heparin have I got? And they go, oh, I've got 2,300. And I go, well, how much protamine do you want to give for that? And they, when I tell them that, they get they sort of go, oh, there's not that much not heparin much. in that bag after all. The interesting thing, though, is the I think part of the problem with pump blood is not actually heparin-related. Um, it's well known that if you leave blood sitting in the chest for a long period of time and then you aspirate out with a cardionomy sucker and you put that all in the circuit at the last minute, you've got a lot of blood that's incredibly activated and so you've got a lot of fibrinolysis going on because you get a lot of plasma activation in the, in the chest when the blood's sitting there. And people do that often at the end of bypass. And so they had that memory of that process. And I, th- I just think there's other processes at play because you give, you do it yourself. You give 2,500 heparin for vascular patients all the time and vascular anesthesia and very little happens. Yeah. Um, certainly not torrential bleeding that's, that's occurring. So you, you shouldn't expect two to 3,000 of heparin to really be causing such a dramatic effect and yeah. certainly should easily be mopped up by the um, small amounts of um, by a protamine infusion if you're running one, which is a recommended strategy in America now. So they routinely recommend um, that you give 25 milligrams an hour of protamine, and that would be enough to mop up that pump blood uh, and any other residual heparin that's unbinded. Right. It's all these different things about cardioanesthesia. Uh, so many different um elements to the practice to what you used to when you come and do that rotation for the first time i just remember it all you know you you try and simplify it to make sense of it so yeah like you just said the act well that's to tell me how much heparin is in (laughs) all those simplifications that kind of miss all the explanations that you've just given i think if you just think back to the the principles a lot of hematology unfortunately gets hidden in very um obscure terms but the if you go back into what the assay is telling you like i'm a i'm a big advocate of point of care tests but there's still only a very crude in vitro interpretation of what's going on in the patient and uh so people say oh well i did a rotum and it lied because the patient was bleeding and it's like well that's not how that that's not what the test is actually telling you. All the test is telling you, one test is saying, like the ACT, it's just telling you what happens when you mix some silica, which is kaolin or uh, sea light, some calcium and from its phospholipid with the blood. That's all you're really testing. You're testing that process of activation to when clot occurs. It's not telling you anything else about the patient. It's not telling you what their platelet function is doing, it's not telling you how much raw surface has been exposed, how much fibrinogen has been turned over in a patient at any one time. So, um, yeah, if you just remember what the individual thing is actually saying that moment in time, it makes more sense rather than the trying to rely on it. People love um, 
having a single source of truth for things. And uh, yeah, the other um, the other interesting thing that I think people forget about a lot of the time uh, in intensive care as well is that um, if you have prolongation of an APTT in a patient on arrival in intensive care, more often than not, that will be just heparin leaching out into the patient. Um, quite frequently, I've had people tell me that they'll give some clotting factors for a for an APTT being prolonged on arrival, because they do, they just do a standard coag screen on patients anyway. And I've tried to encourage people to not do that and to do a port of care test instead, because it'll give them the answer that they want. Because what they really want is they want to know why the clotting time is prolonged. And a point of care test like a rotom or teeth will tell you that. It'll tell you if there's a difference because of heparin and whether there's a difference because of clotting factors, yes or no. Um, so, but if you if you just think that APT is prolonged and it's clotting factors, then you go and give FFP. What you might actually do is just make the heparin work again because you've given a source of antithrombin to the patient <laughs> and you might actually just make them bleed by giving them FFP. Um, um, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about that we've not gone over? No, I think we've touched on most things. When it comes down to pathologies, it's it's always a great idea to talk to someone who's managed the case before. That's the same with everything in anesthesia. When you, I see this in the examination context as well. When I I sometimes put people in a deliberately unfamiliar environment just to see what they would do, and if they come back to me and say, "I would manage this by researching what is done, getting an understanding of the pathophysiology, and then talking to someone who." has managed this before and then asking them to come and be involved with me, mm. then that's 10 out of 10, you know. So you can do the same thing with a lot of these disorders that you, you really, you're not going to see them that commonly. It's a great idea to get someone who's been involved in these cases before and bring them there and they'll be able to guide you through some of just those practicalities of little things like where do I find a heparinase, ACT, cartridge, how do I notify the lab that I might want an anti-10A level and how do I get it back in any sort of sufficient period of time because it's it's really not fast enough to manage most bypass cases, unfortunately. Mm. you know. Uh, but they'll know how that's going to be done and who you need to talk to and, and go for that process. So, yeah, that's my probably my biggest piece of advice that involves someone who's managed these cases before. They won't seem quite spooky. Anticoagulation, coagulation, always been something that I um, had to reread. But the way you've described it, it's, it puts it into such a nice context that I think a lot of it start to stick. And I'm sure people really enjoy listening to that. No worries. Happy to help. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. Yeah. And thanks, thanks very much for making time to do this. <laughs> it's all good. Good to meet you. Thank you for listening to this month's BJA Education Podcast. Be sure to check out our online podcast archive and browse the most recent articles, collections and editor's choice articles which are always free access.